Welcome to How Do They Afford That, the podcast that peeks into the financial lives of everyday Australians. I'm Michael Thompson. I'm a writer and the co-host of the podcast Fear and Greed Business News. As always, I'm with Canna Campbell, financial planner and founder of Sugar Mama TV, the financial literacy platform uh, covering YouTube, podcasts, books, Instagram, your website, TikTok and more. Hello, Canna. Hello. I have a kind of cute efficient savings hack for you this morning. Oh, I like efficient. Go. So it's called Stocard. <gasps> you know Stocard? Oh, yes. I could have almost given this as my savings hack. Too bad. I got it. Oh, okay. I thought you were actually going to be generous and say, go for it. No, please. <laughs> let's hear it. So my phone is obviously busy. I've got so many apps all over the place and I sometimes forget about my loyalty cards. But Stocard allows you to store all of your loyalty cards in the one efficient spot so you never miss clipping your ticket. And I believe Michael is going to be sharing with us his own Stow card. Yes, well, I, I have... I mean, you've really stolen all the good stuff there, haven't you? I mean, Stowcard is great. I love it. Uh, really? And I have used it for a couple of years now. And uh, the, the key to it is the fact that because I never carry a wallet anymore, ever... And so suddenly now you can have your flybys card in there and your Woolworths rewards card in there and and every single one. And even then, if it's not a card that exists on file for Stowcard, you can actually just enter enter the number and it kind of creates the barcode and everything for you. And away you go. It's it is just it makes it so so easy to just run everything through your phone. And then you can access all of the, the kind of the discounts and accumulate all your rewards points through Stoker. Look, you know what? I feel like this was a collaborative kind of savings hack today. I think we can share it. 50-50. I feel like we've been too kind of combative <laughs> in the past. But I think a bit of healthy competition is, is good. You basically told me my savings hacks were rubbish. They were. Oh, okay. All right, moving on. Um, today, we are talking about, well, a couple of weeks ago, really, we talked about the hidden costs of property. Uh, and it's well worth a listen if you're thinking of buying a place either to live in or as an investment. But if you listen to that one and it scares you off, potentially, because it all just sounds way too expensive, then today's episode might just be for you because we're asking the question, what if you don't want to buy property, but you want to get ahead financially. And there are a few things to consider, a few things to do. Before we get into it, though, Kana, as you're listening, please know that anything we talk about is always general in nature. It is never personal investment, strategic or product advice. It is purely for financial education purposes only. Absolutely. Please know that we don't know what is going on in your world with your financial situation. So please always bear that in mind. This is general advice only. All right, Hannah, do we tend to go to property in Australia as the, the default kind of wealth strategy, do yes. you think? Yes, it's a, we have such a huge love affair. And I think there are lots of different reasons for this. You know, it's obviously a tangible asset. We can stand on the front lawn or in front of the apartment block and you know, hands on our hip and feel very proud. It's also a very, very easy investment asset or asset to understand. And a lot of us, you know, our, our parents and our grandparents, you know, have done quite well out of property over the last, you know, 70 odd years. There's also a lot of society pressure mm. to follow the herd mentality and have property. And, uh, you know, for a lot of Australians, we've never really seen a dramatic long-term downturn in property. 
it's also an asset that allows you to very, I guess, easily grow wealth. You know, if you've got a $500,000 property and it's just gone up in value by 5%, you can add $25,000 to your gross worth, capital gains tax-free, you know, without actually even lifting a finger. And there's also the element of, you know, being a proud house homeowner. You know, you can paint it and decorate it and renovate it. Mm. And then there's the status, you know, society status that exists, whether we like it or not, you know. Mm. So, you know, we can't sort of hide from that, that, that that's out there and still puts pressure on people to buy property. And also, I, what I think is probably one of the benefits of property is it allows you to access the equity as your property grows that you can then use to then diversify your wealth, you know, use a debt recycling strategy to buy shares or use a debt recycling strategy to buy more investment properties. So there's there are a lot of reasons and valid reasons for why we have built this, you know, love affair with property. All right. Well, let's jump straight over to the flip side of it then. And without going through everything we discussed the other week when we were uh, talking about the costs of, uh, of property, what are some of the downsides to property as a wealth building strategy? Well, I would say they're incredibly expensive to own. Mm. Owning property, you are constantly putting your hand in your pocket. This breaks, that breaks. Uh, so you've got strata every quarter. And if you've got a, a, an apartment block that has, you know, a lift or it has facilities like maybe a swimming pool, uh, a car park, you know, maybe even concierge, it makes it incredibly expensive, that strata. You've got wear and tear. You know, things don't last forever. Things do need to be replaced. You know, carpets, a fresh leak of paint, you know, white goods breaking. Mm. You've also got a very limited diversification. You know, you've got a large amount of money tied up in one asset. You know, it's whereas you compare that against a share portfolio that you can have maybe thirty different stocks if you want, or even more if you're looking at listed investment companies and ETFs. It also takes a really long time to enter the market. I think I read between eight to thirteen years for someone to save up a deposit to get wow. into, which is you know a huge opportunity cost over that period of time. That's huge. And, you know, they say rent is dead money. Well, interest is also dead money. And on that note of strata, there's also special strata levies. And I, I have an interesting story to share with you. I, I've been hit with special strata levies. One of them, was it was a big one. Hmm. It was actually when I was a single mother. And it was a sizable chunk. It was a five figures. And I had three weeks notice to come up with it. And then recently, Tom and I got hit with, with a very big special strata levy. It was actually a quarter of the original purchase price. Yes, crippling, crippling. And in talking to people about it in the area, it turns out a lot of the other like property owners from other apartment blocks around this particular property are also in the same boat and are also being hit with very large special strata levies because of the wear and tear to the building and that it's been left for too long and so the problem has only escalated and now that's horrific i thought we were alone and it's not at all Mm. far from it property is also again i'm running the risk of making an assumption here but i'm going to make it anyway property is also harder to get out of isn't it than say shares or something it's relatively easy if you just sell your shares and away you go if you want to do that with property it's a longer process 
is more expensive as well because you'll have commissions to a real estate agent, all that kind of thing. And capital gains tax as well, if assuming it's a it's mm-hmm. investment property. Yeah. Because, you know, if you wanted to sell some shares because you just need a quick $50,000 or $10,000, you just sell that amount of shares that equates to that amount of money yeah. and pay the, the capital gains on that portion. Whereas if you want to sell that property, you've got to sell the whole entire property and pay the capital gains tax on that whole entire gain, even though you only needed, say, a fraction of that money. I'm actually quite proud of myself. Yeah, but- really. It's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Felt couldn't have done it better myself. Slightly, kind of, li- a little bit patronising. Yeah, no, I there I go again. I'm sorry, I don't mean to. No, it's all right. We've had a couple of good weeks where it really kind of hasn't happened. Feels as though the last few weeks have been fairly um, nice in the studio. Well, it was one of my New Year's resolutions to stop being mean. But I definitely, I guess, I get so passionate. I just want to make sure that you know more. I'm filling you up with as much financial literacy as possible. It's, it's for your own benefit that I'm being mean, is basically from, what you're saying. It comes from a kind place. Oh, well, that makes it all okay. Hmm. Now, we've talked now about the downside to property. What's the alternative? If that's if that's the whole point of this episode, don't want to buy property, how do I get ahead financially? What's an alternative to generate that kind of passive income? There are so many different options out there. Okay. So you've got shares, mm-hmm. and obviously shares pay dividends, which is the passive income, and you can often get franking credits with them, which make them even more attractive. Then there's real estate investment trusts, which we've spoken about previously on another episode. There's managed funds. There's also listed investment companies, which is what the wonderful Peter Thornhill talked about in his episode. Then there's exchange-traded funds, which are very similar to listed investment companies that are immediately diversified that also pay dividends. And they sometimes some of those can be biannual or quarterly, or some ETFs now also pay monthly. You also may want to look at investing in a business such as a silent partner. You know, there's just so many different options out there these days as to, you know, really to build wealth without having to necessarily go down that property path. Do you see people doing it? Uh, do you see people kind of going, you know what, property is just not for me. I can't afford to save for 13 years to get a deposit together. I'm going to start investing now and I'm just going to, just property's not for me. Absolutely. There are so many people out there who do not prescribe to the, the property, I guess, mentality. They would much prefer to have a diversified investment portfolio with a range of different passive income streams coming in. And because they're not having those ongoing expenses of holding property, their cash flow is a lot healthier, which is being proactively redirected towards building up their investment portfolio. And of course, then the flow and effect is their passive income. So yes, there are a lot of people out there. And also a lot of people from the FIRE community you know, follow this philosophy. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more particular about the FIRE community because that always kind of gets people uh, quite... Fired up. Oh, there we go. Oh, there's a little flash of brilliance for you. Uh, but I also want to talk to you about superannuation and uh, a few elements uh, relating to that. We'll take a very quick break and come back in a second. Kanna, we're talking about what to do if you don't want to buy property but still want to get ahead financially. And one of the big things that uh, that we've talked about in the past is this FIRE community, the uh, financial independence retire early movement. And 
I, I'm so intrigued by this and why kind of property is not really something that that is so central to that community. Is it because of those reasons that we talked about before that it is kind of, it's easier to get into it. It's more kind of liquid. You're not just kind of putting all of your assets into one property and it allows you to be more diversified. Yes. And also the fact that rental income doesn't necessarily grow Mm. over the long run. You know, if you look at dividends and I think Peter Thornhill referred to a listed investment company that where the average growth per year of the dividends is 5% year on year. So you don't necessarily have those long-term two-dimensional passive income growth opportunities as well. And also, you know, people find it quite overwhelming being tied to a property. It, it feels restrictive for some. Have you ever seen people just go, you know what, I'm going to focus 100% on my superannuation and every year I'm going to kind of top it up to the maximum amount that I am able to do so and that is going to be my long-term kind of financial strategy and I won't worry about it so much then until I'm retired and then I am um, accessing my super and, and using a, 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 an income generated from that. Absolutely. There are a lot of people out there who love the simplicity of superannuation. Mm-hmm. They love the fact that there's, that temptation is removed because obviously you can't access it. Then there's, of course, the tax effectiveness of superannuation. And, you know, it's essentially an investment portfolio. However, those people typically are people who are probably closer to retirement. So they don't really mind that it's restricted because they're going to be able to access it within the next, say, five to 10 years. So it actually works them. And because it's so tax effective, it actually means that they can potentially accumulate a larger amount of wealth more efficiently because they don't have that eroding effect of okay. you know, their marginal tax rate being applied to that asset base. I suppose it would take a particularly kind of long-term approach for a 20-year-old or something to say, I'm going to focus solely on my superannuation and look forward to the day in 40-something years when I retire and I'm able to access it. Well, it could be a little bit frustrating. I mean, I still think a 20-year-old should definitely pay attention to their super and if they can, mm. you know, whilst they're in a situation where they can afford to, the benefit of contributing to it in the long run is is very, very powerful when you, you know, do run some comparison compounding growth calculations. But the thing for those sorts of people is what happens if you reach age 40 and you've got, say, $3 million in super and you think, wow, I've got $3 million in super and it's paying me a passive income, for example, of you know, $150,000, $200,000 a year. I'd really love to retire because I could comfortably live on that. But you can't because you can't access it. It's a little bit, it's a great problem to have, don't get me wrong, but that's mm. why I always think it's, you know, it, you can't just focus on one. You've got to really look holistically at all the different areas in your life, particularly if you're young. However, yes, there are definitely people in certain age brackets where they really should utilise superannuation with the assistance of a, and guidance of a financial planner. On superannuation, where do you stand on self-managed super? We've never really talked about it. We need to do an episode. I have done one on Sugar Mama's Fireplay. Okay. Actually, it's spread across two episodes because there's so much in it. Look, they're very expensive to set up and they're very expensive to run. You do need to have a certain amount of money to justify the expense, but for the right person who has a particular unique investment strategy that doesn't want the mainstream retail super, yes, they can be very powerful. And because there's so much onus on 
you know, the person whose money is, that is the trustees, mm. it does really force them to pay attention to all the rules and regulations. So they're more likely to be engaged and then potentially increase their opportunities for better returns. So I'm on the fence. Personally, I don't have a self-managed super fund. I don't see myself setting one up because they do actually require a lot of time and a lot of paperwork, which I don't have time for. And I, I, I love my retail super. It's very cost effective. It ticks all the boxes for me and it has in-species transfer service which is actually a benefit of self-managed super fund. And you've talked about this a lot before. I have. It's mm. very important to look for. So, okay, look, this is it's an interesting topic because it kind of wraps up a lot of the uh, things that we've talked about before, particularly with Peter Thornhill in an episode that I would definitely recommend people go back and have a listen oh, to definitely. because uh, the way that he has used non-property investing uh, to really set himself up is, is really quite inspiring. But it's also a case of, you should get some professional advice. If you are wanting to get ahead financially and not wanting to do it using property, then talk to someone who can advise you on this and who can kind of go through what your goals are and where you actually want to be and and what money you have and what money you would like to have and, and actually maybe set up a plan and, and help you get there and talk through some of these options. Because we, we talked about things like obviously shares and, and real estate investment trusts and management funds and, and uh, listed investment companies and, and investing in, in businesses as a silent partner things. And, and each one of those is something that you can be talking to a, a financial planner about and whether it's right for you and, and kind of what element of risk is involved. Absolutely. So clearly then in the end, there's plenty of options out there for people who don't want to get into property. And it might not be that you, that you don't want to, you might just be prevented from accessing it by the extraordinary cost of entry. And if you're not wanting to spend 13 years saving up to get your deposit together, then there's plenty of other options. So many options, but jump on them, use them and make the most of them. Set down some good concrete goals to work around so that you are not feeling like you're getting left behind. You are actually building wealth, potentially in a more efficient way than everyone else. All right, Kenny, I know you talk a lot about these kinds of things on on your social media platforms. Is that the best place for people to to find you? Yes. And of course, there is Monday morning's episode on Sugar Mama's Fireplay. Excellent. All right. And you can hear me every day with Sean Aylmer on Fear and Greed, Australia's best business news podcast. Thank you very much for listening to How Do They Afford That? Remember, please to hit follow on the podcast and leave us a review as well. It's always very much appreciated. Next week, we are talking about a very serious topic and unfortunately one that that seems to be a growing problem in Australia. We're talking about financial abuse. It is an important conversation, so please don't miss it. 